got your Bibles, go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. We made it all the way to chapter 3, y'all. Y'all almost done. <laughs> 18 more to go after this. Nope, 28, I'm sorry. <laughs> 28 more to go. Proverbs chapter 3, we starting at verse 1. When you get there, let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you and we praise you for being God and allowing us to hear your word. Give us hearts of understanding, God. Open up our eyes that we may see and see you and see you clearly, Father God. Instruct us in the way of life that we may please you in our going. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we made it to chapter 3. And here in chapter 3, the father continues his discourse with the son. So we got the father picking up his discourse. And we're going to break this chapter down is we got the opening discourse from the father. Then there's an interlude for wisdom. And then the father come back and speak. So we're going to start with the discourse of the father up here. And now in this little piece, it's, it's a strange little piece. It's not that strange. Because it's starting to turn a little bit. Because most of what we've been getting from the Father has been general rules and guidelines for living. We have the warning against the wicked men and the warning against the strange woman. We got the appeal to wisdom and just general things about the pattern of life. We had the admonition to seek wisdom and, and about that pursuit and our heart posture towards going after wisdom. But here he turns a little bit and start to, to zone in on the lifestyle of the son in particular and started giving him admonitions. Now this little bit, I term you, you, you blessed life now. <laughs> so we'll we, we see how to get our blessed life now. Starting in verse one, it says, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Yeah, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. So we have this same appeal again. And it's the, thing you don't forget it you don't let it slip you don't let it go away but parallel with not forgetting it is keeping it so there's this sense of where we have an obligation to hold on to to preserve to hedge it in the law and the commandments so we forget not my law but let thine heart keep my commandments why before length of days and long life and peace shall they add unto you so he gives us a blessing with his words and his commandments so he said for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Now these are all different ways of saying a similar thing. So length of days. So they're going to stretch out how long you live. Long life. That basically that, 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 that vitality that you have. It will increase. And you're going to have peace in the midst of it. Now them some pretty heavy promises that he got there. You're going to live long. You're going to have a, a lasting vitality. And you're going to have peace. And all of this is connected to keeping his words and holding on to the commandments. That's, that's, that's pretty deep. And I'll take, I take this moment now. Now, this is where a lot of people start having a little prob problem with Proverbs. And the question is, I think I put it at the end of this section on your notes. Just something for you to meditate on. The, the theological debate with this book, especially when it comes to this chapter, and we're going to point out the other ones later on, is 
are these promises or are they just general principles? That's the, the debate that the, the Bible theologians and all those have. Like, are these promises or are they just general principles? Like, does the book really mean what it says? Because if we just read it on the surface like that, it seems like he's he, he teaching the prosperity gospel. And um, they told us that the prosperity gospel is bad, whatever it is, that it's bad. <laughs> and so the thing that we have to wrestle with, and we're going, I'm going to play with it a little bit, but I want you to meditate on that. As we look at these promises and as we get to other promises or that seem like promises, are these are just general rules of life? So is he saying that if you pay attention to these commandments, if you keep them, if you hold them, there's a good chance your life going to be longer than those who don't? Or is he saying these commandments going to make your life longer? And we're going to see a couple of these promises as we go through, especially here in chapter 3. But we're going to play with it. Just want to let that pause there for a minute. And he goes in verse 3. He said, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thy heart. We give another thing that we need to do. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. So the law and the commandments is the first thing. We're supposed to keep and hold on to them. And if we keep and hold on to them, they're going to add length of days, peace, and long life. Now we got mercy and truth. And here mercy and truth is a common collective. And when you especially throughout the Old Testament, you see them together a lot. A lot of other places, like in Psalms, it's called, it's, it's the same word as loving kindness. That thy loving kindness and thy truth not forsake me. Now, the question that we have here, what does he mean by let not mercy and truth forsake thee? Because on the surface, we understand. Don't let them forsake them. Don't let them leave. You keep them around. But is he talking about mercy and truth being extended from you or mercy and truth that is given to you? And that's the, the position that we're in now. So is he saying that the mercy and truth that is poured out from God to you, hold on to those things? Or is he saying mercy and truth as a way of lifestyle that you pour out and that you give to others? Don't let that leave from your pattern of life. And as we look, and especially as we go through it, I think it's a mixture of both of them. Because throughout the Psalms over and over again, it talks about the loving kindness of God and him pouring out his truth to us. But once we make it to the New Testament, Paul reminds us, he said, you need to have bowels of mercy and speak truth one to another. So you need to be tender in your heart and you need to declare the truth. And that's mercy and truth. So is that bowels of compassion. Be compassionate. Have compassion. Be sensitive. But be firm. And that's the poetic parallel in here. And it's a, a, a contrasting picture. Like be soft and hard at the same time. That's mercy and truth. That mercy is compassion, softness, tenderness. That word truth can be translated as firm. Be hard. So you can be soft and firm at the same time. And if we keep these things in a collective the way they put out, it, it, it alters our way of life. Because we have different camps. As people say, you know what I'm saying? If you want, if you're going to be a Christian, you're supposed to be tender. You're supposed to be the compassionate one. I'm saying you can't tell people no. Man, give me a dollar. I ain't got now. See, man, you're supposed to be a Christian. How you going to say you love people? You won't give me a dollar. Like, dude, I ain't got no dollar. 
And that's the, the, the pendulum that we have that a lot of people go to that extreme that is love, 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 and love means that we accept and we embrace and we just bow down to everything and everybody. But what he's saying here is we combine mercy with truth. And that truth is firmness, that thing that is real and consistent. So we be soft, we be compassionate, but we stand on what we know to be right and we hold people to that standard. We have to keep them both together at all times because we receive them both. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And as it comes through Jesus Christ to us, it should flow out of us to people. So when we have people who are in predicaments that we need to show them mercy, but we show them mercy in relation to truth. We hold them to that standard and we keep them where they're supposed to be. Like I said, the easiest place that we see it in our culture when it, when it comes to fornication. The church is messed up. We don't know how to deal with it. I'm saying we, we got a, a limp-wristed piano player. You have some folks that be like, hey, he good, he love the Lord, he come to church and all that. Leave him alone. Yeah, lead worship, anointed. And then you got the other camp that say he can't even come in here. Like, it's abomination to even see him. And what we're saying is both of them are right. We love him. We embrace him. We want him to come around. But we hold him to the standard that, no, nah, dog, it ain't right for you to be limp-wristed. This is the truth. And there's a standard of manliness that God has put down that you need to comply with. But there's a heart of compassion where I'm willing to love you and to serve you to get you to that point. And that's that mercy and truth. We cannot leave them. You cannot exalt one over the other. You have to keep them both in unity because that's who God is. So as he show it to us, we in turn turn and put that out to everybody. That's why I think the, road, the writer left it vague like that. He said, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Like What mercy and truth? All of it. The ones that you receive in that that you give out. It needs to be in that harmony. He said, if you do that, I mean, he tell you another way not to let them forsake them. He said, bind them about thy neck. And write them upon the table of thy heart. Time up like a chain on your neck. And this is a, a throwback to the book of Deuteronomy. Where God told them his laws and commandments. He said keep them as the frontlets of your eyes. Put them on your door hinges. And it's a picture of having something with you. That reminds you of the thing that you're trying to hold on to. So it's like make you an amulet for, for mercy and truth. Something that you keep with you. To to. To, to remind you of it. And it's a, 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 a tightening picture. Cause he said first, don't let them forsake you. Like don't let them leave. Lock the door. Now he's saying bind them about your neck. So not only don't let them leave, bring them close to you. Have them with you. Then he goes even deeper and said, write them on the table of your heart. So it's this picture of you receiving mercy and truth and holding on to it to the point where it becomes a part of you. So you go from holding on to them, not letting them leave, to binding it about your neck, to even writing it on the table of your heart. So it becomes a part of a pattern of who you are. So we take mercy and truth and we ingratiate ourselves to them to the degree that we become them. Y'all see the picture, how we wrap that. So it ain't just something that we got. And I got to remember to be merciful. I got to remember. No, you hold on to it to the point where it becomes a part of you. So you don't let it leave. You bind it upon your neck. Even deeper than that, you write it on your heart. And then he gives us another promise to it, another blessing that we're going to receive. 
says, so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God. So this is the second blessing that we get. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God. The first blessing was that we're going to have a long life and peace if we hold on to the commandments. Now he gives us a second blessing. You're going to get favor and good understanding in the sight of God if you let mer- don't let mercy and truth forsake you. If you write it upon the table of your heart. And that favor is grace. And it's a picture of God looking to you in a sense of desiring to do something for you. That's the picture of favor. That he looked towards you with a desire to do something on your behalf. That's, he favors you. And he's like, if you have mercy and truth bound in your heart, you're going to get favor in the sight of God. So God is going to be looking towards you with a desire to do something towards you in man. People are going to want to help you out. People are going to prefer you. That's a pretty deep promise there. Yeah, that bit, that bit heavy. That's why you said folk debate them only. Like, is this true? Being merciful and truthful together going to put you in a position where God want to help you out and people want to help you out. And he said you're going to grow in good understanding. That means your ability to comprehend, your rationale is going to increase if you have mercy and truth written in your heart. Which is another way of saying you're going to be like Jesus. Luke 4 tells us that Christ grew in favor with God in favor. He grew in wisdom in favor with God in favor with man. That's all we got about the, 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 the adolescent life of Christ. Like He grew in wisdom in favor with God in favor with man. That's what happened to him. And now we Proverbs put that same formula together for us. Like you're going to increase in favor with God, in favor with man, in good understanding. So you're going to increase in wisdom, and you're going to increase in favor with God, in favor with man, if you don't let mercy and truth forsake you. That's a pretty deep blessing. So if we hold on to mercy and truth, we're going to be like Jesus. Then he goes to the famous verse in verse 5. And gives us our third blessing. It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. So trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Like I said, this is a famous verse. Everybody know this. But here he gives a parallel between, a uh, contrasting parallel between trusting in the Lord and leaning not to your own understanding. So that word to trust in the Lord basically means what we think it means. To you rely upon him. And so to truly rely upon him in the writer of the Proverbs is to don't depend upon that lean. You don't rely upon your own understanding. So it's a sense of you getting rid of your own perceptions of life and your own perceptions of the way things are supposed to be. And you truly rely upon him. When it comes to life and the way that you live. So if when we, we talking about the way that we do things and the way that we live our lives and the decisions that we make. If any of it is dependent upon your perceptions of things. If we understand this proverb rightly, you're not trusting in him with all of your heart. That's pretty deep. If I make my decisions based on my perception of understanding of what's the right way to do things. I'm not trusting in him with all of my heart because he is the one that's supposed to make the dictates for life. 
And that's why he gives the second closing statement. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, that word acknowledge him is, is, can be a bit confusing. Because actually the way that he used it really don't make sense. Because we think acknowledge means to be like, say, hey, Jesus. That's what we mean to acknowledge somebody. Deep dudes, we come in the room, you nod your head. That's what you acknowledge him. But what the word literally means is to know him. In all your ways, know him and he shall make your path straight. So it's a sense of in everything that we do, we do it from the knowledge of God. And we want to be intimately connected to him in all our ways of life. So I'm trying to know God in everything that I do. All my paths and patterns of life, I want to know him. And he said, if that takes place, the blessing is he going to direct your path. And direct your path means make your path straight. So he going to cut a path for you. He going to create a shortcut for you if you acknowledge him, if you know him in all your ways. And that knowing him in all your ways is not dependent upon your own perceptions or your own comprehension of things. You're willing to put yourself down and allow the knowledge of him to guide you and direct you. Y'all, you understand what I'm saying? So how do I know I'm trusting him with all of my heart? If all of my ways are dependent upon the knowledge of him. That's a, a, a easy test. Am I trusted? Have I surrendered my all? Have I given up all my opinions? Do I trust him in everything? Do I know him when it comes to all the different patterns of my life? The way I discipline my children, the way I respond to my spouse, the way I relate to my friends, all these things based upon the knowledge of God. If they're not based on my knowledge of God, I'm not trusting him in all things. I'm holding on to some perceptions of life. Like what me and Eve was talking about Friday night. We all got them folks. I know what the Bible say, but baby, you got to understand. (laughs) <laughs> like my baby like, they let you know that I know if you boil it all the way down what they're saying is I know a little something better than what the Bible going to teach you <laughs> that's basically what they're saying I, I know what the Bible says but baby you got to understand like when I was getting married everybody was like man you how old you is 22 you finna get married you ain't even live yet. And I had auntie. Said, Babe, I know you want to do right, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to, you don't need to do this right now. You, you know what I'm saying? They put me on game and on life. Yeah, breaking it down. Because the idea is I know what you're talking about. And that good you're trying to do that. But this right here is going to be a little bit better. Now, nobody would say that that's what they're saying. <laughs> but that's what they mean. I said, I know you and your, I'm telling you, y'all going through something. I know you supposed to love me and all that stuff, but that, uh-uh, but that Bible, <laughs> don't mess yourself up with that Bible. See, what you need to understand is, then they give you all this advice about how you supposed to handle these situations. Yeah. <laughs> From the Bible to broken homes and, and and messed up marriage. <laughs> but that's the part of that trusting him. It's knowing him in all your ways. And that's the ability to rob yourself of your opinion. And allow the knowledge of him to lead you and guide you in everything that you do. And he makes you a promise. If you do that, he's going to cut a path straight for you. He's going to make your path straight. So God is going to direct your path. God is going to create a path for you 
if you trusted in and relying upon him. Now these promises are a bit heavy. The first one, God going to give you long life and peace. The second one, God is going to give you favor and wisdom with God and with man. And now he's saying that God is going to make your path straight. He's going to cut away your life for you. He's going to put you on his own road. All you got to do is trust him. In verse 7, he said, Be not wise in thy own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We're giving us something else to do. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Here we go once again. We run to this phrase, this phrase of fear the Lord. Now he says it in another way. Well, you've been running into the fear of the Lord. But now he's telling you fear the Lord and depart from evil. And here he's expounding on our definition of the fear of the Lord. Because first all we had was that the fear of Noah had something to do with knowledge. And here he added to, I mean, later he added to it in chapter two and told us that the fear of the Lord is parallel to knowing God. So if you know God, you fear him. And now here he's saying that fearing the Lord has something to do with departing from evil. Now be not wise in our own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. So there's a sense of us conceiving ourselves and relying upon our own wisdom as being a contrast to us fearing God. So don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't conceive of yourself as being wise. Don't depend upon your own standing of uh, your own understanding of life. Instead of doing that, fear the Lord. And there's this sense where if we live life our own way and we depend upon our own understanding, you're in a sense rebelling against God. You're not fearing him. Because if you can ever truly, truly conceive in your mind that I know something and I can make some decisions just as well or better than God, you're putting yourself in the position of God. And if you're bold enough to put yourself in the position of God, that means you don't fear him. Because you're willing to, I'm saying, I know, I got this one, God. And that's the contrast that he's given. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Then he adds to that and depart from evil. And that word depart means you turn your back on it. So turn your back on evil. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. So fear the Lord is couched in between not depending upon yourself and turning your back on evil. So if you do both of those things, you're representing fear to the Lord. So if you're willing to go towards evil, if you're open towards evil, if you yield towards evil, you're not fearing God. If you're dependent upon your own conceit, your own conceptions, your own understanding of life, you're not fearing God. So there's the combination of turning from evil and failing to, failing to rely upon yourself that equals fearing God. Uh, Y'all see how I get there. So it's those things being, fear of God is the meat of that sandwich. You turn from evil, you don't depend upon yourself, and that's an expression of you fearing God. But like you do when folks go, man, go on, holler. But you scared? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, like God is a real scared dude. I don't want to fear. <laughs> so I'm going to turn my back on that one. And that's the picture that we got. And he give us a blessing with that. And say, it shall be health 
to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. He gets super poetic to that. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Now that to thy navel is almost like what it seems. To the thing that the placenta disconnect from. So like, so the, the, the origins of your life gonna have health. Like he, he gonna install some strength to the very origins of your being. To the place where the placenta come from. That's what fearing the Lord gonna do. Then he parallels that with, what is it? Marrow to thy bones. And that word marrow is almost could be translated drink. So it's going to be something that create moisture to your bones. So you get the picture. When you see dead bones, what are they? They dry. Ain't no life. Ain't no blood flowing through it. Ain't no vitality to it. And what he's saying is, your stack of bones going to have life or vitality to it. The, the, the seed of your life going to have strength to it. All you have to do is fear the Lord. So it's another blessing of life and strength and vitality that flows from fearing God. Like I'm, I'm gonna inject life into the, your very bones. Like you're gonna be marrow to your bones. You ain't gonna be no dry something. There, there's gonna be health to it. And all of this is a promise from fearing the Lord. And it get pretty heavy. Then he turns. It seems like he's changing subjects. In verse nine, he said, "Honor the Lord with all of thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thy increase." So we're telling us something else to do. And he got a, another blessing connected to this one. So what we need to do, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of thine, all thine increase. Now, this is a very poetic picture too. That word to honor the Lord is a Hebrew image of make him heavy. So if you think about it, connecting with the substance, you can say, load the Lord down with all your substances. Or burden the Lord with all of your substance. And it, it's a, it's a imagery of you heaping all of your stuff on him for him to carry it. And that's a connection of honoring him. So you take all your substances and you heap it on him. Right? You put all your substances on the Lord and you let him carry. It. That's what, that's the poetic imagery that he got here when he said honor the Lord with your substance. So you burden God down with all of your substances. And now the hard part about this thing, he, he hit it and quit it. He leaves it alone. He don't tell you how to honor the Lord with all of your substance. How do you give all of your substances unto God? Like how you let him carry the, the substances of your life? He just tell you to do it. And he answered that and with the first fruits of the all thine increase. And that could be translated just with the first of all of thine increase, with the primary part of all of your increase, with the initial of all your increase. So we take the principal parts of everything that we gain and we let God be honored. Like we let him be burdened down with that. So we got this picture of all of our substances, everything that we gain, every way that we are multiplied, and we just dump it on God. Then he says, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty. And thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. And that's the blessing connected to it. Now, think about this thing. Proverbs seems to be written to rich people. Like, why do you say that? Not only do they got stuff to give, they got barns. 
Poor folk ain't got no bars. Poor folk ain't got no wine presses. And so we got this picture, and now we see an evolving picture of who he's talking to. And so this, I, I, when I read it, and we're going to see it as we go forth, it's sort of like a training for a son to be a king. So as he's giving these instructions to his son, this just ain't no any father talking to any son. This is a great father talking to a prince. And there's a preparation for real life and there's a preparation for responsibility and there's a preparation for management that he's trying to train this son for. Like I'm trying to teach you how to lead and be a leader of people. I'm trying to teach you how to be a wise and great king. And that's what we have going on here. And so in this promise of honor the Lord, keep upon the Lord, all of your substance is in the first fruit of all of your increase, like so shall your barns be filled with plenty. And there's a contrasting picture in this blessing. And he says it outright later on in the Proverbs. If I'm taking all of my stuff and heaping it upon God, I ain't putting nothing in my barns. So how my barns going to be filled with plenty? If I'm taking the first fruits of all of my increase and heaping it upon God, I'm not leaving anything for my wine presses. So how are they going to blow forth with, with new wine? And there's this contradictory picture that he's presenting here. Like if you really want to fill up your barns, don't put nothing in it. Give it all to God. Like if you really want to produce great wine, don't press your fats. Throw it all on God. Like take the best grapes that you got and get them to God. And that's how you're really going to get the new wine flowing. And that's this contrasting picture that's going to be expounded upon as we go on. Like, if you just look at it on the surface, like we've been taught it so much that it makes sense to us. But if you're just reading it rough, like that don't make no sense. If I take all of my substance and pour it on God, how my barns going to be filled with plenty? And in here, he just throw out that promise. There's no explanation. And there's a sense where he's calling the son into a place of trust. Because that don't make sense, that. Give all my stuff to God, and I'm going to fill up my barns? No, the only way you fill up barns is by putting stuff in it. So there's this sense and level of where he's calling his son out, and he's putting him and increasing his level of faith and his level of trust and his level of dependency and his level of leaning upon the words of the Father. You got to depend upon this stuff. And it takes you not what? Leaning on your own understanding. Because that don't make sense to regular understanding. That's not common sense. That I can heap all of my stuff somewhere other than my barns and my barns be filled with plenty. And that takes that trust. That takes that leaning out on your own understanding. That takes not being wise in your own eyes. But that humility to bow yourself down and allow these words to instruct me. Y'all, you, you see what I'm saying? How, how I get that right there. And in verse 11, he gives this last little blessing. Now, most people don't see this one as a blessing, but it is a blessing. It said, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he corrected, even as the father, the son in whom he delighted. So don't despise, don't hate or reject the chastening of the Lord. 
Now that word chastening is a funny little word there. And it's one that creates a lot of theological uh, uh, confusion. Because most of the time when we think of chastening, what we think about? What Justin was trying to do to his son. <laughs> you get the you get the belt out and you whoop him. But just a short little piece. Well, I don't want to take the full journey. Uh, we took we talked about it before. In in chapter one, in that introduction, those seven key words that we paid attention to. It's the same word that we use here. Now in chapter one it's translated as instruction. And also the same word shows up when we turn to chapter 4. Like, hear the instructions of your father. So this word of instruction, this word chastening, this correction, is not primarily or only the hard discipline. There's an expansive sense of, because the word could literally be translated as the turning of the head. Now you, 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 you grabbing the head and putting it in the right direction. And so when he's saying despise not the chastening of the Lord, what has happened with this term is, especially when it shows up in Hebrews chapter 12, people get the idea of, I know I'm a Christian because when I do wrong, God beat me. And he he gives conviction and and, and things go bad in my life. That's a limiting of this term of the chastening of the Lord. The idea of chastening is instruction. It's discipline. It's training someone for a certain task. You're getting them in the right position. And it doesn't always have to be connected with discipline in the sense of correcting the wrong. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Because Paul talked about the picture of that God gave him a, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And why was that messenger of Satan? He didn't say he did anything wrong. He didn't say he was living in any sin. He didn't say that his life was, I'm saying I was on about to make some bad decisions. He's like, God sent him down to keep me humble. So there was a sense of, of God disciplining Paul or chastening Paul for the purpose of maintaining humility in him. Because I was on, we was out the street one night talking and we ran into these guys and this guy, we was, we was talking about life, Christian life. This dude was a street preacher and I think Jay offended him. I don't remember. So I'm going to blame it on him. <laughs> and, and talking about living right and calling sin out in folks' life. And dude got really offended. And his idea, it's like, man. And he, he was trying to kick back theologically of, of why it was okay for him to be in sin and struggle with sin. Like I said, I can't remember who offended him. I'm blaming it on Jay. <laughs> but now that I think about it again, I don't remember you actually talking. I was doing the talking. But I'm going to say, I started talking after you offended him. That's the way we're going to remember this story. <laughs> but dude was going in, and he asked a, a, a question. And he was, he was real humble about it after a minute. But he was going, and he was going at it like, man, see, this got to mean this, and this can't mean that. Then he went to Hebrews chapter 12, where, where he, the writer of the Hebrews quote this verse. It's like, do you ever chasing your son when he haven't did anything wrong? And I blew the dude's mind. I'm like, yeah. 
You step back. It's like, what type of father are you? You're chasing your son when he's not doing anything wrong. Like, no, he might not have done nothing wrong, but he can do something better. Because chasing is deeper than just smacking and whooping. It's discipline. It's training. When <clears throat> when you played Mike Tyson punch out when you was a kid, I don't know if y'all played that. And you had a little man on the bike like this. <laughs> Riding behind Mac. He was chasing him, Mac. There was some training. There was some discipline. There was some instruction in getting his life right and keeping him on the right path. When coach got you out there, you doing them suicides. That's chastening. That's instruction. He's preparing your body for running up and down the court. To be able to change direction with speed. That's a skill that you have to be able to have to play the sport. And the only way you get that skill is through discipline. And that discipline always is not negative is the point that I'm getting to. And that's what we have to expand this picture. It's like don't despise the chastening of the Lord. So there are some times where God going to be on you. It's going to come through the form of words and expression. You're going to hear strong rebuke. You don't hate it. There's some times where life just going to create pressures that, that, that streamline and discipline your life. And it ain't because you did anything wrong. It's because you're a different type of person so you can't live like everybody else. Uh, y'all understand what I'm saying? And that's part of the chastening of the Lord. It comes in many forms. It comes in many fashions. But we can't limit it to an expression of I'm, I'm, I'm sinning so God hate me. And that's why my radiator blew up. No. God disciplined his children, but God also trains his children. And that training, that correction, that, that conviction and that drawing, that, that, that zoning in and that discipline of life is a sign that the father loves you. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And, and it's that drawing out where you can't rest content in a certain place where God he, he, he holds you to a standard and he trains and he set up life for you to make sure that you're on that right path. And that's an expression of his love towards you. And that's why he said, don't be weary of his correction. And when he, when he keep hitting you and like, man, I ain't, I ain't did nothing. God, I just thought about it. And as soon as you think about something, you come up in here and I get to preach and use you as an example. Even though I didn't know I would use you as an example, I was just telling the story the first thing come to my mind because I ain't got no notes. <laughs> you like, shoot, man, God, you know, man. <laughs> we all done been there. And it's like, don't be weary of that. And that word, don't be weary, mean don't stop it. Don't get to a place where you cut it off. It makes me think about my dad sometimes. I couldn't do nothing with my dad that was halfway serious. Because he always have to turn it. Like when I played drums. If I was practicing and he walked in the room, it's going to turn serious. Like I could have just picked up the stick just to do something on my way out the door. And he going to step in. Don't stop. Arm tied. Forearm tighten up. Don't stop. Like, damn, I'm tired. <laughs> have your arm fell off yet? <laughs> <laughs> like, no. And you get the quoting. 
quoting uh, Martin Luther King drum majors and all that type stuff. <laughs> like you know what I'm saying, you gonna sweep streets, you gonna be the best sweet streeper that. Uh, what that? Come do? I'm just, I'm just playing drums. <laughs> but that was correction. I ain't do anything wrong. I'm saying we walking somewhere and we get a little hill and he catch a job. Here I go. Don't run. Because he gonna say you can't stop running until your legs fall off. Is he punishing me? Have I done anything wrong? No, this was a light moment. Just a son playing with his dad. But he turned to see Because he can't stand to see laziness in his son. And so to get that laziness, to get that quit up at you, you can't stop. Like that, I ain't doing nothing. I'm tired. Your legs still work though. <laughs> you ain't tired until you fall. If you can still stand up and you can still move them, you can still run. That ain't true to me. <laughs> but that's that's a similar picture of this correction. That's a similar picture of this discipline. That's a similar picture of what goes on in the love of a father. And it's an expression of love to producing you something that he desires in you. Like I said, the, the picture is the turning of the head, the putting you on the right path. And it ain't always negative. And as we see that going forward, I'm going to just try to highlight you because this word is translated different ways. So in our English translation, we miss it. We only catch it when it's chastening, rebuke, correction. But when instruction, instruction, teaching, doctrine, all of those a lot of times are the same exact word that's used here. And so our theological understanding is streamlined and we think that this okays our ignorance and our evil because now I got proof that I'm a Christian that I feel bad when I'm seeing. You can't find that on the Bible because God's chastening the correction goes beyond that. But I stayed there too long. <laughs> Verse 12 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he corrected, even as the Father and the Son in whom he delighted. So there's this sense of love there's a sense of delight. That delight means to take pleasure in. So just like a father takes pleasure, treats the son whom he takes pleasure in, so the loving father or the God of you, he loves you, and he expresses that through disciplining you. Uh, y'all understand? Like the favorite son get trained in the business. The foolish son just go on by the way. And the picture is the, the favorite, we are the favorite sons of God, and he's training us in the business of life and, and, and winning souls. And doing all the things that it is that he does. And now we, we, we reach the end of that section. And now we're finna turn in verse 13 to this next appeal for wisdom. Starting in verse 13. So we finna try to make wisdom look good to us. And understand that. All especially in these first nine chapters, wisdom gonna be presented as a woman. Said, happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. Well, this is the blessing here. So blessed is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. That word findeth wisdom is a picture. I want to always point this out to you. That findeth wisdom is a picture of you mining for something and discovering it. So blessed is the man that mines for wisdom and discover it. And the man that getteth understanding is the one who pulls something in. 
you acquire it, you go out to pursue it. So if you're mindful wisdom, if you pull in understanding, you're blessed. But what does this present to us? Same thing like we was talking about last week. Wisdom is out in the middle of the streets calling. But God tells you to call out for wisdom. Wisdom is out in the middle of the street stretching herself out trying to get you. But God tells you to seek her and pursue her. So there's a, 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 a responsibility on us to pursue, to go after, to discover. And it's always there. And we, we, we'll go there. I ain't going to end up sticking too long on that if I say that. So we find it. We discover it. We, we go after it. We pursue it. And verse 14 said, for the merchandise. So this is the price of wisdom. Or the profit of wisdom. So the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver. And the gain thereof than fine gold. So this is her price. The profit. That word, the merchandise, is that what you can get in exchange for it. So if you trade wisdom, it's going to be better than what you get if you trade silver. It's more precious than silver. It, it has more value than silver. It said the gain. So that what it brings about, the product that it can produce, that's the gain of it, is greater than gold. Yea, fine gold. So that's the, and like I said, that deep. Like, think about that for a minute. Do any of us believe that? Better than gold, better than silver, you can get more from wisdom than you can from gold and silver. That what, that what gold can bring into your life, wisdom can bring even more than that into your life. <laughs> there's, there's a deep thought to just to sit there and ponder on. Like, do I really believe that? Like if God was to pull you aside and say, hey, I give you gold or I give you wisdom. Which one you want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> but that that's the picture that he's presenting here. Like what you can produce with gold, you can produce even more with wisdom. Like what you can get in exchange for silver. Like if you go out and give somebody silver and what they give you back. If you go out and put out wisdom out there, what you going to get back is better than that. That's a heavy picture for you to meditate on. Like I said, I'll be slow when I'm just Kirk Franklin saying that song. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. That's that, that pretty deep. <laughs> What's the byproduct? We we gonna get that. We we got a little bit of it. He, he said one of them. what what you said. Life is one of them. Long life. And he, he, he gonna expound on it some more. But that that that's a good question to ask. Like hold up now. <laughs> if I had a trade, like what what would I want? <laughs> Verse fifteen says she is more precious than rubies. And all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Like this is deep. If we really believe it. So she is more precious than Ruby. Now what he mean by precious is that it's something rare. Something to be valued. Something everybody can't get their hands on. So I'm saying she is more precious than rubies. And all that thou canst desire is not to be compared to her. So like everything it is that you can conceive in your mind that you want. Can none of it compare to wisdom? 
That's deep. Like more precious, more valuable. It's a rare thing than a ruby. Like rubies is something you had to mine, especially in those days in this region. <clears throat> it's something you really had to mine for, and only certain places had it. So it was, you couldn't just go down the street and just buy a ruby ring. There's only a few, and it took deep mining to bring them out. It's like it's more precious than that. It's more rare. It's more valuable than rubies. Then he expand on like anything your heart can desire can't compare to it. Like, so if you want to take value. Take the greatest thing your heart desires, and it won't touch wisdom. So he's selling wisdom real strong right here. Then he goes in 16. So length of days is in our right hand, and in the left hand is riches and honor. So he presenting wisdom as this woman, as you standing there waiting on you. Length of days is in our right hand, and in the left hand is riches and honor. So wisdom is loaded down with gifts of long life and prosperity. Riches and honor is in the hand of wisdom. And we need to find her out. Set her ways. Uh, so now he's talking about the paths of life. I told you that way, that path is a pattern of living. So the way that living wisdom lives, her patterns of, of life is ways of pleasantness. And her paths are paths of peace. So there's delight, there's leisure, there's satisfaction in her ways. And there's wholeness and security down her paths. So you got wholeness. You have security in her paths. She's more precious and more valuable than anything your heart can desire. That she can produce and bring to you riches, honor, and long life. And just say she can produce more. It's a more value and bring more profit than silver, yea, even the finest gold. So this is his appeal for wisdom. In verse 18, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. So she is a tree of life of everyone that lay hold of her, and happy of everyone that pertain, that retaineth her. And so he, he gives this tree of life picture as a throwback in the Israelite Middle Eastern mind, this concept of a tree of life cannot be detached from the original creation. That thing that God gave to Adam and Eve to sustain life for always. And that was something that was longed for, especially back in the golden times. Like you, when we hear little stories, we think it's movies, like people looking for the fountain of life, people looking for the, the, the fruit, the thing that this was real things. Because if you get the picture, they were descendants. Of Adam and Noah and all those people. So you hear them stories. And these were tales that was passed on to them. So you hear the expression that God made a tree. That can make you live for forever. Yeah, but like, where is that? I want that. And this is a common journey that everybody was longing for. And people was trying to figure out. Is there any ways? Is it in the soil? Is there like any nutrients left from this tree? And this real deal. If you go back and read history. That was one of the first emperors of China. He had his wise men and his sages scouring his whole area looking for the elixir or, or the fruit of that produced long life. And he thought he found it in mercury. No joke. The dude drunk mercury like every day until he died. So in his search for the fountain of life, he killed himself. But that's the picture that he's given here. It's like wisdom is the key 
or is itself the tree of life to all of those who retain her. So put yourself in that mind. Like if you go up in that world in that culture where they're looking for this thing and they're trying to find the source of life and they want this, this, this quality that produces long life and he tell you, hey, wisdom is the tree of life to everybody that contains. I'm like, hold up. It's like somebody coming to us and like, man, wisdom is the Botox to every <laughs> to everybody that <laughs> well, y'all deep and healthy now. Wisdom is the collagen. <laughs> y'all more scientific now, all around this day. See, wisdom take all the wrinkles out your forehead. <laughs> That's the equivalent of the picture that he's painting. Like, you're gonna be young forever. If you attain, embrace her. And it's this picture because he painted wisdom as a woman. And when you think about embracing this woman and this woman having a tree of life, it's like this intimate relationship that he calling you into. Like you get wisdom. You hug her. You hold on to her. Then he says to everyone that retains her, you don't ever let her go. So you don't just get it and, and, and step back. Because think of a tree. When you have a tree of life, tree produces what? Fruit. Now, why does one tree produce multiple fruits? Could it be that you have to eat more than one time? And there's this concept of a continuous drawing from this tree that is pictured in this thing. You, you get what I'm saying? So you got a tree of life. Like you, we fast forward to the book of Revelations. It talks about the tree of life for the healings of the nations. That's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. And it says, we eat from it. And it's this picture of, you don't just take one apple off the tree and eat it and say, I have consumed my nutrients for life. No. There's this continuous process of drawing from it. And then we got wisdom and we hold on to her. We embrace her. The products of her life we continuously draw from. She is a a tree of life that we go to. You don't just take one time and stop it. We receive all the produce from it. You continually go back to this well. You continuously go back to this fountain. You continuously receive from this tree. And that's this picture of you embracing and you hold on to it. That's what we're supposed to do with wisdom. And if we expand that wisdom, that's what it, that's how it is with life. Because people get confused when they think about salvation and holiness and living right. You They give you two options. Either it's instantaneous or it's a process. Them the only options they give you. What if I tell you it's both of them? What if I tell you you instantaneously enter a process? What do you mean by that? It's just like living now. Because being born again is being brought into what? Life. And the things that produce life, how long do you do them? The whole rest of your life. And even though you're doing the things that create create life for the whole rest of your life, you're eating, you're breathing, you're giving yourself water and, and all the things you're taking care of, your, all the stuff that, that, that allow life to flourish, you do that for the rest of your life. Nobody ever say living is a process. Like, I'm trying to get to living, bro. Like, I'm working on that. As a matter of fact, I need to call my wife because I need to work on my living right now. I'm, I'm going to be at home. Nobody ever say that. But a part of doing the things that pertain to life is living. 
So you instantly get all that you need from life from the day you are conceived and mama begins to pour nutrients into your body. You instantly get it. There's nothing that is added. There's nothing that is taken away. There's a growth in the development of all that you have that makes you you that continues throughout the rest of eternity. Instantly. But since you're living, you progressively develop, you progressively sustain those things. Like, man, my mama gave me an ear. I don't need to clean them. Like, they were clean when I got them. <laughs> like, no, man, you need to take care of them. And that's this picture and this pattern that you, you are instantly in a progress, a process. And that's what we got when we got wisdom. And it's, let's <clears throat> see can we make it there. Verse 19. So the Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth by understanding he hath established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down due. So now he's telling you there's a connection between God and wisdom. And it shows you some of the effects or, or what wisdom can do. Some of the purposes of wisdom. So the Lord by wisdom founded the earth and, under, and by understanding he established the heavens. So God by wisdom Set this thing up. Founded the earth. He made it firm. He made it secure. And he established the heavens. He's put them up there where they're supposed to be. Said by his knowledge the depths are broken up. And the clouds drop down the dew. That's deep and poetic. Like By his knowledge. By the knowledge of God. The information that he has. Him being intimately connected. The depths are broken up. It's, the depths are the seas. So he can break up the seas. And the clouds drop down dew. Now I can't read this without getting a picture of the water cycle. In, in, in the amazing intricacies that God created when he gave, gave us that. Like he breaks up the, the depths. The great seas are broken up. He pulls out of them to create the clouds in the midst of the heaven. And he pours down fresh water on the earth. All of this is done by the knowledge of God. You know the vast majority of the water on the world is undrinkable. But God in his divine knowledge created his own filtration system. He takes salt water from the seas. Separates the salt from the water. Creates cloud and rains it back down as fresh waters upon the mountains in our valleys and in our rivers. This is all by the knowledge of God. He breaks up the depths and pours down, drop the dew, that, that fresh dew that we can benefit from, that fresh dew that brings life and vitality to this earth. All of this was done by the knowledge of God. That's amazing. And this is a picture that we have of understanding in, in the preciousness of wisdom. Can we make it through these last 14 verses? Can we? I'm going to have to speed up. <laughs> so my son, let not, we're going back into the admonition of the father. So my son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So Hold on to them. Now he changed it from don't let them forsake you to let them not depart from your eyes. So keep your eyes on them. Hold on to them. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And sound wisdom is a firm way of pattern of life. And discretion is discernment. Where you can dif differentiate between right and wrong, good and evil. Like keep that with you. It says so shall they be life unto thy soul and grace unto thy neck. So that's the promise of life from these words and wisdom and discretion. In verse 23, said, then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. So if you hold on to sound wisdom and discretion, you let them produce life in you, 
So you're going to walk in your way safely. You're going to be secure in your life. The way that you live your life, there's security in it. And your foot won't stumble. So there's no occasion of stumbling or tripping on your path. He's going to make it straight. It's going to be secure. There ain't going to be nothing in this way of life if you got sound wisdom and discretion that can take you off this path, that can put you down. There's, like I said, some heavy promises that he got. So when thou lies down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, when thou shalt lie down, thy sleep shall be sweet. So he's promising of a safe way of living. The way you, the way you live your life, you're going to be safe. When you go to bed at night, your sleep going to be sweet. So he's promising you security outwardly and security inwardly. And all you need to do is keep sound wisdom and discretion. You can sleep in peace. Said, so be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it cometh. So there's there's a a, a a instant dread that can come throughout life. It's like don't be afraid of it. Don't let it quake you. Don't let it take you off. And neither of the desolation of the wicked. So there's a destruction and a destroying that comes to the wicked. Hey, don't be afraid of that. You, you, just like that. That's the way God said. You, you don't got no reason to fear. <laughs> I know God from my government. <laughs> you don't got no reason to fear. So when destruction and chaos come to the wicked, don't you worry about it. When terror arise in the earth, don't you be afraid. Don't worry about that. It said, why? 26, for the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. So the Lord shall be the thing that give firmness to you, that keep you from quaking. So he the one you rely on. So when sudden fear arises in the earth and the economy get to going bad and people get to dying and everything get to going and you don't know what's way up or down, like don't worry about that stuff. Allow the Lord to be your confidence. Allow him to give you soundness and security in life. Because he's promised that he shall keep your foot from being taken. And that's the picture of being caught up in the desolation. That's the picture of being destroyed by the, the sudden fear that's going to come. Like God's going to keep you from getting snatched up. So you allow him to be your comfort. You allow him to be one that gives you confidence in life that you can go on this path and you can still do your thing. You can still live the way you're supposed to live because he is your confidence. He won't allow you to be taken. So withhold not good from them to whom it is due. When it's in the power of thy hand to do it. Hold on now. He's getting a little personal. Well hold not good from them to whom it is due. When it is in the power of thy hand to do it. So he's talking to him about this, this life of peace. And now he's talking about relational peace here. So well hold not good to whom it is due. When it is in the power of thy hand to do it. So the folks that is due good. Don't hold it back from them. When you got the power to do it. Now he's speaking parallel here. So what if. Aaron needs something to eat, and Aaron, I mean, and Edmund broke. Is Edmund obligated to feed Aaron? It ain't in his power to do it. But if he had the means to supply what is due, and as it's strange that he used that word "due," we're gonna come back on that one later. Like, like you owe it to him. To them whom it is due, don't hold back. When it's in your power of your hand to do it. Like, and we, if you meditate on this the way we're supposed to, that can expand all the way deep from life. So all of us know when our first time we lied was when somebody called for mom. From one of them special numbers. <laughs> 1-800-something. <laughs> oh, this is, this is Jan from Capital One. 
Sheen Hill. <laughs> Don't hold it back from them humans do when it is in your power to hand to do it. Then he expounds. He says, say not unto thy neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give, when thou hast it by thee. When you have the ability to do it, he's saying, do it. And now he's explaining when you do it. You do it then. Don't say to your neighbor, hey, holler at me tomorrow. When you got the money right there in your pocket. Don't say to your neighbor, I'll pray for you. When you got time to pray right then. Don't hold back the good when what it do when you got it in your power to do. Come nine out of ten when y'all say I'm gonna pray for you, be lying. Cause you go on about the pattern of your life and you don't think nothing else about it, then the folks show up and you be <laughs> you looking crazy. And then they be giving you props and you don't want to tell them, I ain't pray for you. They be like, I appreciate your prayers so much. And you just be, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you ain't said a thing. So you don't hold back. And when it's in your power to do it, you got to do it, do it then. Don't tell them go and come back. I'll I help you out tomorrow. And you ask this. These are relational pieces of peace. So we give folk what they do. We give them when we got it. In 29, we devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. So if you got somebody that's safe, they like being around you, they don't plot up in your head evil things against them. Don't be planning on ways to get over on them, planning on ways to mistreat them. Like when they dwell securely by them, let them be safe by you. Then he goes on to no relational stuff. It says, strive not with a man without cause if he have done thee no harm. We don't fight. We don't debate. We don't go back and forth with people without a reason. Like, if ain't nobody did you no wrong, don't strive. Don't get up into argument. Don't stir up stuff. These are all, all relational things, relational peace. Now, the first part he was talking about, you're going to have sweet sleep. You're going to be safe when you're walking. That's emotional peace. Now he's talking about relational peace. Hey, you give to people what they do when you got it to give, and you do it right when they're there. You don't tell them to wait. You don't strive with your neighbor without a reason. You don't think up evil plots or, or, or come up with evil imaginations against them. And in 30s, he's, I mean, 31, he said, envy thou not the oppressor and choose none of his ways. It's still a relational thing. So the oppressor is the violent man, the one who, who, who gets gain through taking advantage of other people. Like, don't envy that man. And take on none of his ways. And there's this picture, this, this one you really need to think about and think on. Anytime you see a man who profits through violence, and, and, and the word can be doing more than violence, through illicit gain, through taking advantage of people, you don't ever want to be like him. That's the picture that he's giving his son. So the dude that comes up, and he's the big man, and he make it through selling crack and destroying our neighborhoods, don't ever want to be like him. And it, it gets a bit deeper on the inside because it just did not say don't seek to emulate. It said envy not. Because especially church folk, we have a, a hard problem with this. Because we understand not to want to emulate the drug dealer. We understand not to want to emulate Jay-Z. But there's a strange thing that happens when you see the prosperity of the wicked. 
that you desire to have what they have, even though you don't desire to do what they do. And that's what he's getting at their heart here. Don't envy the, the oppressor. The one who gains increase by illicit gain, don't envy them. Don't even let it be in your heart that you despise any other things that they have or that you desire any other things that they have. And he said, choose none of their ways. And that gets a, a, a bit deeper too. And that goes into how we do business, how we relate to one another, how it is that we give, seek our come up. Because he said, don't choose none of their ways. So if the way that I, I, I do business, if the way that I relate to people, if the way that I, that, that I pursue my endeavors and go about my career is based on any of the ways or the patterns of life or the systems of, of judgment of the wicked or the oppressor, I need to reevaluate. And there's a sense where we should be anti-culture. There's a sense where we should be willing to press against the norms and press against the means and question everything just out of a sense of security. We don't want to absorb or we don't want to allow the, the oppression of the wicked to become the pattern of our lives. Just we, we see it even in small things. When Massa talked to our great-great-grandparents and he got upset with them and he wanted to mean them, what he did? Beat them down and called them a nigga. Now when partner get mad at me and he ready to bust me in the jaw, what'd he tell me? Nigga, come on. <laughs> now we have been trained nowadays that that's a term of endearment. So why you only say it to me when you get mad? Why it comes out like a cuss word when you're ready to bust me in my face? Because we have adopted the ways of the oppressor. And we have allowed the system that was put in place by those who were over us to become a part of the system of our life. And we do it in more ways. That's just an easy example. That's something we have to meditate on. We don't choose none of the ways of the oppressor. And we don't envy him in any of his life. We don't want none of the stuff he got. We need to be anti-culture. I said I was going to hurry up. It says in verse 32, said, why? This is why you don't envy their way. It said, for the froward is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the just. Right? The froward, those who are perverse in their ways, God hates them. He loathes them. They make, he make, they make him want to throw up, but his secret is with the just. And that word, his secret is his, his, his private counsel that God sit down and whisper in the ears of the just. And if we connect that to not adopting the ways of the oppressor, it gives us the picture that if I reject their ways and if I refuse to live life according to their patterns, God himself will come down and whisper in my ear about how to do it. That his secret is with the just. That he, he, God will give me insight. He'll put his arms on my shoulders like, don't worry about that, bro. This is all you need to do. And that's a promise connected in that. In verse 33 said, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blessed the habitation of the just. God hands is against the wicked. The curse is in the habitation. And that word curse could literally mean he spit on. He spit on the house of the wicked, but he speak nicely to the habitation of the just. He leaned towards you to do you good. That's what it means to bless you. That's the imagery there. So he leaned over and spit on the house of the just, but he leans to, to give good to the habitation 
I mean of the wicked, but he leans to give good to the habitation of the just. Says, surely he scorneth the scorners, but giveth grace unto the lowly. So God mocks the mockers. He boasts against the boastful. But he gives grace unto the humble. This is something y'all probably don't recognize this verse, but you quote it all the time. You go, but you know it from James translation. Well, God, well, he says that God resisted the proud, but give grace unto the humble. That's, this where he get it from. Surely God scorneth the scorners. God boasts against the boastful. But he gives grace unto the lowly. So those people who are humble, say God, he, he comes and he be, he favors them. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of the fools. And this is why we don't choose their ways, because the wise, those who embrace wisdom, those who follow, don't lean into their own understanding, those who turn from evil, those who are nice and kind to their neighbors, those who don't forsake mercy and truth, say glory. God is going to promote them to glory. They shall inherit glory. But shame shall be the promotion of fools. So you're going to get disgrace and dishonor if you're a fool. Glory if you're a wise man. And the way that he set this up, I cheated a little bit, is for you to pause and think about that. Because like you're going to inherit if you're wise. Where you going to inherit it from? Like you're going to receive if you're a fool. Where you going to receive it from? And he leave it blank right there. And that's where a lot of people mess up. They take Proverbs out of his context and we disrespect it by looking at it as a natural book of wisdom. And so we don't allow the text to breathe and let the full wisdom of God to come forth and answer those questions. Because when you get it on the surface, you think that people are going to like you if you're wise and people are going to dislike you if you're foolish. But we see life don't work like that. Some foolish folks get honored and some wise folks get disrespected. So what does he mean you're going to inherit glory? Where do you inherit it from? And that's a question for you to pause and to think about. Now we know because we got the end of the book that God is going to bring us and reign us to glory and destruction and desolation and shame face it and it shall be poured out upon the wicked. We got that now. But you can't detach this book from that to allow these blessings to speak wholly and not just naturalistically if you, if you understand what I'm saying. Anybody got any questions?